It is good to be worshiping here and with you this morning. I uh, appreciate the opportunity to share with you in this current sermon series of uh, a people following Christ. Let's come before the Lord in prayer. Father God, we count it a blessing and a privilege to gather together in this house. We thank you for the gift that you have given to us of this church and of the fellowship of like-minded believers. Father, we pray that we would be serious about being a part of your body. That's body with a capital B. Help us to better understand what that means. Help us to live a life that would show forth that understanding and help us to, as best we can, follow in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen. It was a beautiful day. The sun was shining, the air was clear and crisp, and a cool land breeze was blowing out to the lake because it was still too early for the land to have heated up and for that, that wind, that breeze to reverse and come off the lake. The sun was glinting off the ripples of the lake, and every now and then the pattern of the ripples would be interrupted by a fish breaking the surface to attack a fly. Simon's breathing became shallow, and his pulse quickened. He allowed his mind to wander to the perfect cast, those times when he would gather up his net and throw it, watching as the array of stone weights pulled that net into a perfect spiraling circle, just as it descended into the water. It was such a beautiful thing. And it was such a good feeling as the net left his hand and as that line paid out, allowing the net to sink to the desired level. A good feeling, but still a feeling that was second to the feeling of resistance that a net full of fish would give as he began to draw in that line. The stronger the tug, the more resistance, the more fish, and the bigger the smile on Simon's face. Come on, Simon. Snap out of it. Wake up. It was Andrew, his big brother, who interrupted his daydreaming. Daylight is burning, he chided, his back already facing Simon as he began to loosen the lines holding their boat. Simon Simon worked to shake off his happy distraction, and he called to his brother, Andrew, let's try from the shore before we put out. I've seen some movement. Andrew, without even questioning, put the lines back on the mooring posts as he watched his younger brother prepare his net for casting. And then in one long, smooth, sweeping motion, Simon launched his cast net, releasing it in a perfectly practiced way. The net opened into a circle of almost 25 feet. It's spiraling, causing the sunlight to flicker as it came between the sun and the fishermen. You know, even though Simon was, or even though uh, Simon was younger, and even though he could be impulsive, Andrew, his older brother, rarely confronted him. Even if he disagreed with him, it just was easier that way. Sometimes Simon was impetuous and his judgment was off, but he was a quick study, and he rarely made the same mistake twice. 
but it was the emotion, the passion that went with his spontaneity that was so difficult to deal with and so difficult to counter. But to question Simon before he tried his way, Andrew had already tried that. He had made that mistake one too many times. And today, Simon's judgment was spot on. Andrew could tell. He didn't even have to watch. He just listened to that familiar laugh as Simon called out, Get a look at this, Andrew. Simon and Andrew had it made. While fishing was hard work, the Sea of Galilee was teeming with fish. The climate enabled them to fish year-round, and the demand for both fresh and salted fish was high. Now, while actually physically fishing was how you got the fish, most of their time was spent mending nets. And this was time and labor-intensive, but very important to do because the nets were made of linen, and if they were left to stay wet, they would quickly rot. Now, up until Jesus' day, there weren't many Jewish fishermen. In fact, in Hebrew, there's only one word for fish. (laughs) One word. It describes everything from a minnow up to a whale. And by the time of Jesus' ministry, a small yet flourishing fishing industry had developed around the Sea of Galilee. And these men were probably quite prosperous. Now, compared to others in their culture, they were probably comfortable. They certainly didn't enjoy the same luxury as Herod or or Caiaphas, but they most likely didn't want for the material necessities of life. There's scripture to suggest that they were successful enough to even hire assistants. And they also worked as a community. They helped out each other as needed. uh, taking each other's back, watching each other's back. And so we do marvel at the immediate response of the disciples when Jesus called them. Take a look at um, Matthew 4, 18 through 20. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. Immediately. There appears to be no hesitation, no question, no second thoughts. And the same was true for James and John. If you, if you look further in Matthew 4, verses uh, 21 and 22, you see that their response was, immediate also. They all left their nets and followed Jesus. But this most likely was not the first contact that Jesus had had with them, at least for Andrew. And the way that we know that is because of the first chapter of John. Let's take a look at that. The next day again, John the Baptist was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you going? And he said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, 
for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who had heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. So Andrew must have been one of John the Baptist's disciples. How about that? Did you know that? He had... uh, and he and another one of John's disciples had spent the day with Jesus. Can you imagine doing that, spending the day with Jesus? You know, how awesome must that have been? And do you think that Andrew never talked to his brother Simon or Peter about that? Of course he did. Of course he did. Probably while they were mending nets because they spent so much time cleaning and mending their nets. And it could well be that James and John were right there with them. They often did that, sitting around together, cleaning and mending their nets together. They all lived in Capernaum. They also worked as fishermen. And Jesus lived in Capernaum too. It was his home base. And Capernaum isn't all that big. You know, you could literally throw a stone and hit most any house in Capernaum. It's not that large. So they had probably not only met Jesus, they had probably had prior contact and certainly talked about this teacher. Still, still, even with this initial input from Andrew, they dropped their nets and they left everything. They followed Jesus. But it's still okay to marvel at their response. It's still okay to do that. Because you see, getting to know Jesus to the point of following him, to the point of truly, earnestly trusting him, takes time. It's a process. And we continue to trust him as that process continues to unfold in our lives. All of the disciples had given up everything in order to follow Jesus. You know, later in in, uh, Jesus' ministry, Peter reminded Jesus of that. Lord, we have left everything. We have left everything to follow you. What would you have done? What would you have done if Jesus invited you? Come, follow me. I'll make you fishers of people. How would you have responded if he asked you? Yeah, the thing about that is he has. He already has. (laughs) Let's be clear. Jesus is probably not going to ask you to quit your job and leave everything and follow him to the mission field. Probably not. Although he still does do that. You know, just ask Paul and Beth, college. You know, how many of us, when Paul and Beth told us that they were called to go to Indonesia and embrace a completely different culture and lifestyle, thought or even said, I could never do that. That's probably why you weren't asked. Paul and Beth could do it. They did respond. Thanks be to God. But you are being called. Make no mistake about it. And you're being called by none other than Jesus himself. And what is Jesus calling you to do? You probably already know, don't you? And if you're like most people, including myself, you're most likely resisting that call. 
I resisted, and some of you have heard this story, I resisted going into the ministry for three years. Three years. And if you don't know what Jesus is calling you to do, then probably you should spend a little bit more time in prayer, in the Word, and in talking with fellow Christians. But make no mistake about it, Jesus is calling you to follow him and do something to pursue him and his way. You know, as we continue the uh, People Following Christ series, and as we explore the basic expectations for members with Parker Ford, we move to number three this week. Number three is growing biblical in lifestyle, relationships, and spiritual practices. A people following Christ. Hmm. Jesus said to Simon and Andrew, follow me. I wonder if there's any connection. The meaning, whoops, the meaning of to follow, as in a people following Christ, means two things, actually. First, it means to believe and adhere to the basic teachings of Christ, which was what Pastor Tim was talking about last week. As members of Parker Ford Church, we would expect that you would share PFC's basic theological beliefs and that you would follow those beliefs. That's the first part of the follow. But there's another part to to follow in a people following Christ, and that is actually to give our beliefs legs, to actually physically get up, to get out of our pew, our seat, and to actually do something that actually shows that we are not only followers of Christ, but that we actually physically follow him out into the world to do as he would have us do. We show that through following him. Now, granted, we are told to only believe, to just believe, right? Remember that old song? Only believe All things are possible, only believe. Jesus tells us in uh, John 6, Then they, the crowd, said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? They wanted to know, what do we have to do? And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. Now the crowd didn't like that answer. If you, if you look at verse 30, they, they want to know, well, then what are you going to do to make us believe in you? <laughs> they put the onus back on Jesus. They put the focus back on Jesus. They don't want to take responsibility, you see. But that's what we're to do. To do the work of God, it is to believe in the one whom he has sent. Romans uh, 10 9 and 10 says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Belief is followed by action. Faith is followed by fruit or by works, we could say. Trust is followed by obedience. And in these verses, what you hold in your heart is expressed, is naturally expressed through your mouth. It turns into action. Now, make no mistake about it, belief 
is enough. Jesus said it. We already read the verse. This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he sent. Belief is enough. But action, a response to that belief, is something that naturally follows. It was in the upper room, immediately after Jesus washed his disciples' feet, that he said, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Now, he didn't say, if you do them, you are saved. He said, you're blessed if you do them. And then in the uh, Gospels, all of the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all have a version of Jesus' great commandment. This is the one that's found in Luke. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. I like Luke's version the best because he doesn't stop to give the second great commandment. He blends them right together about loving your neighbor as yourself. There's no separation. There's no hesitation. No difference, as it were, between loving God and loving your neighbor. Those should be the same thing. Now, John doesn't have a version of Jesus' great commandment, but he does say this, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And that's the point we were trying to make with the children's sermon this morning. Well, where does this love come from? Well, John tells us, and he tells us in 1 John, Beloved, let us love one another, for love, love is from God. Love is from God. Well, how does God show his love? Let's think about that for a minute. Well, in a variety of ways, but he does stuff, okay? God does stuff. He acts. God just doesn't keep his love for us as this warm feeling. He just doesn't hold it. He demonstrates it. He shows it in some way. We receive blessings, and by we, I mean all people, not just us in this room, not just Christians. I mean all people. We all receive his blessings. It rains on the just and the unjust. Jesus said that in the the Sermon on the Mount. But the most important way in which God acted was this. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Amen? Amen? You know, make no mistake about it. In order to be saved, belief is enough. Belief in Jesus as our Lord and Savior is enough. Jesus himself said so. But to lead a Christian life, to lead a godly life, to lead a biblical life, we have to love. And how do we love? We have to do stuff. It's as simple as that. We have to do stuff. James said it the strongest. So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Simply put, pretty direct. To love our neighbor, we have to do stuff. To love our spouse, we have to do stuff. To love our kids, we have to do stuff. To love our cousin in upstate New York, we have to do stuff. Fill in the blank, you know. And the early brethren understood this. If you sat in on the uh, PFC 101 classes, or the history and belief class in particular, you know that the Church of the Brethren was influenced by both the Anabaptist and the Pietistic movements. 
And one of the things that makes the Church of the Brethren unique is that its founder, Alexander Mack, took both of these movements, the Anabaptist movement and the Pietistic movement, and combined them, saying that they were not mutually exclusive, that they did go together, they worked together. This is the seal of Alexander Mack. In addition to his initials, A and M, actually it's the seal of his son, uh, Alexander Mack Jr., who also got the connection between the the Anabaptist and the Pietistic movements. In addition to Mack's initials, it has three main elements, the cross, the heart, and there's fruit. There's some grapes there. The cross is understood. Jesus and his word and his way are the governing influence in our lives as Christians. But the heart, the heart represents devotion or a belief to believe with one's heart. And that was the contribution from the pietists. You see, they believe that religion is of the heart. The fruit represents the Anabaptists. It's the contribution of the Anabaptists, that as believers, we should produce fruit. The faith that we hold in our hearts should somehow evidence itself in some ways in our daily living by the fruit that we produce. Now, be very careful not to misunderstand, and I can't emphasize this enough. This fruit, these actions, are not what we do in order to be saved, okay? They are a natural response to having been saved. What is important to understand is that faith and works go hand in hand. The fruit that we show forth in our daily living is a response to the faith that we hold in our hearts and in our minds. So, here's a question for us. When we come to church here on a Sunday morning, you know, uh, everyone knows that we're Christians, right? But here's the question. During the week, as I ask the kids, when we're at work or when we're at school, how does anybody know that we're a Christian? How can they tell? What makes your lifestyle different than a non-Christian? Unfortunately, we kind of blend in, don't we? We kind of like to blend in. How about your home? If somebody came over to your home and they didn't know that you were a Christian, how would they know? Would it be the the Bible on the coffee table? Or maybe the scripture quote hanging in the bathroom? How do your kids know that your home is different than, say, one of their friends' homes where they aren't Christians? What makes it different? You know, let's face it. In our world today, there are a lot of really nice people. Yeah, I know we complain about all the jerks on the highway and those rude, despicable people who take 15 items through the express lane when the sign clearly says 12. But truly, those people are the exception, right? I mean, most people abide by the rules. Most people are are nice and kind and loving. I mean, they're respectable. I mean, go to Wawa. Seriously. I mean, don't most people hold the door for you when you go to Wawa? It's not just because I'm almost a senior citizen, right? I mean, they do it for everybody. Okay. Now, those same people that hold the door for you when you go in, they might run you over in the parking lot. 
No, I shouldn't have said that. I, you know, I'm sorry. People are usually careful. People are good, right? But at Wawa, for example, how could somebody tell that you're a Christian? I used to think about this when I was, uh, whoops, when I was in Rotary. Uh, I remember one time I was so angry about something that happened at a store. I don't know. I had to go to customer service. I don't remember what it was, what it was, what it was about. But I had to go to customer service, and I got really cranked up. You know what I mean. I was really going to lay it on thick. Got pretty fired up. I marched up to the counter, and the representative pointed to my lapel and said, Oh, I see you're in Rotary. You know, you wore this little pin on your lapel when you're in Rotary. Well, my dad used to be in Rotary. What a great organization, the four-way test and so on. (laughs) My demeanor changed immediately, completely, and for the better. You know, maybe we should wear some identifying pin or something that says we're a Christian. It doesn't work to wear a cross. I was going to put up images of people who aren't Christians who wear crosses. Not appropriate for a church. You know, celebrities that don't live a Christian lifestyle, they all wear crosses. So you really can't tell if somebody's a Christian by wearing a cross. And how about those PFC magnets on the back of our cars? Have you ever cut somebody off in traffic and then you realize you got that magnet on the back of your car? (laughs) You know, when those first came out, there were some of our members who were actually advised they probably shouldn't put one on their car. (laughs) But here's the bottom line. We don't need pins or crosses or bumper stickers or car magnets. We need love. Plain and simple, we need love. Let me remind you of this verse again. That you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And love evidences itself in so many different ways. Nine to be exact. Love, of course. And then there are the others. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Paul lists this fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, but in Colossians 3, this is what he has to say. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So, what is the fruit in your life? Uh Uh-oh, that didn't work. (laughs) I'm a little disappointed. All right. In any case, you're only supposed to see the first column there. Uh, the fruit is listed on the left. What's, what's the fruit in your life? Is it love or is it apathy? You know, hate isn't the opposite of love. Apathy is, just not caring. Do you evidence joy in your life or are you a purveyor of discouragement? That's some rotten fruit right there. Peace? or discontent, patience or impatience, kindness or intolerance, goodness or deviousness, faithfulness or complaining. There's a fruit that we bring to the table quite a bit, right? Gentleness or harshness, self-control 
or impulsiveness. Our lifestyle should be one of pursuit. Pursuit of Jesus. To walk in his ways, even though that walk will include steps of faith. It should be a lifestyle that is based on Scripture and our relationships. The people with whom we spend time should be those who will build us up to help us come closer to God, to become all whom God created us to be, not those who would drag us down. We still have to have friends who are non-believers. I mean, look at Jesus' example, for, uh, for instance. But our purpose in doing so is to show them the love of Christ. We are to engage in spiritual practices, things like prayer, which is critically important, worship, both corporate and personal, Bible study, both the corporate Bible study and personal, and also figuring out how we can effectively witness to others. And again, this is a process. It's a process. We aren't called, by the way, to grab people by the lapels, shake them and say, are you saved? That doesn't work. Can you see Jesus doing that? No. You know, think about how Jesus was a witness to his heavenly Father. Think about his characteristics. He asked a lot of questions, first of all. And, you know, that's an effective way to witness is to ask questions. It really is. He told stories. He broke bread with people. The outcasts of society were told. He ministered to physical needs. He encouraged others. And these are all things that we can do. Our last name does not have to be Graham. If you don't have a copy of this booklet, they're on the tables in the back, I think. There might be some on the Welcome Center. You can see one of the elders or Rosa. This is a great place to start, the Spiritual Practices booklet. It really can help you in starting the process of making incremental steps to growing a lifestyle in pursuit of Jesus. Jesus has called you. So what are you waiting for? Drop your net. Drop your net. Oh, you know what we want to do? We want to drop anchor. (laughs) You know, seriously, don't we? We want to drop anchor, especially, you know, when we're just starting to get comfortable. It's like, let's stay here. That's not what we're called to do. Drop whatever is holding you back and follow Jesus. I want to talk about one more passage of Scripture. If you have your Bible, turn it to, to John 21. And I'm not going to put the scripture on the screen, but feel free to follow along in your Bible. And whether you have your Bible with you or not, I invite you all to read this last chapter in the Gospel of John this afternoon. Spend some time reading it on your own. But I'm not going to put the scripture up. I'm going to put this picture up. And this is the Sea of Galilee. It's a picture of the traditional site where this passage took place. You know, even though it's after the resurrection and Jesus has already appeared to the disciples on two different occasions, they're pretty lost. They don't yet have a sense of purpose. They feel disconnected. They don't know yet what to do, and Peter announces he's going to go fishing. (laughs) And the other disciples say, yeah, we're going to go too. You know, they didn't know what to do, so they reverted back to something that was familiar, something that was comfortable. 
and they all go hop in the boat, and they all go fish. Peter hasn't figured out, and the other disciples, I guess, hadn't figured out yet how to be a disciple without Jesus. But he knows how to fish. And so they go out in the boat, and they go out on the Sea of Galilee, and they fish all night, and they don't catch a single fish. You know, this fishing was supposed to make Peter feel better. The other disciples feel better. It didn't work. It didn't work. And then you know the story. There's a stranger on the, on the shore. They don't recognize him at first. We know who he is, right? It's Jesus. Jesus is out there, and he calls to him, and he tells him, you have any fish? No. Lower your net on the, on the other side of the boat. They, they, they do it. And they can't bring the net up. There's so many fish. They can't even land the net in the boat. They have to haul it behind the boat. Now, John, at this point, figures out that it's Jesus. And as soon as he tells Peter, Peter, impulsive Peter, what does he do? He jumps into the water. Fully clothed, jumps into the water and swims, leaving the disciples with the boat to try to row in this big, massive net of squirming fish. 153, I think the the text says. Jesus has a fire going. He already has some fish, has some bread for them, and they eat. And then Jesus singles out Simon Peter. Three times he asks Jesus, do you love me? Or Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? And three times Peter answers affirmatively. Jesus replies to Peter's answer, a different way each time. The first time he says, feed my lambs. Then he says, take care of my sheep. And then he says, feed my sheep. And the Bible tells us that when Jesus asked Peter the third time, Peter's feelings are hurt. (laughs) He didn't realize that Jesus was working to reinstate him. You see, Peter had denied Christ three times. And so Jesus was asking Peter three times, do you love me? Do you love me? The first time, he asked him, do you love me more than these? What's these? You know, we don't know. What did he mean? Do you love me more than you love these other guys, these other disciples? Do you love me more than they love me? Is that what he meant? Or do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than this boat and these nets and this fishing equipment? Maybe Jesus understood that Peter was just on the brink of settling for second best. Maybe he understood that Peter was, was going to go back to fishing for fish instead of for people. And then Jesus said, follow me. And Peter must have really been self-conscious because, you know, all this attention was being focused on him. Jesus was asking him all these questions, and he, he felt these eyes of the other disciples kind of piercing through his back. And, and he looks back at John, and he says, well, how about him, Jesus? What about him? And basically, Jesus says, don't worry about John, but you must follow me. And it was a a reinstatement. It was a a recalling of Jesus' initial call to Peter to follow him. 
He did it again. He did it again. Where have you in your life settled for second best? How will you answer Jesus when he asks you, do you truly love me more than these, whatever these are in your life? You know, what is distracting you from wholeheartedly following Jesus? It's like being caught up in a net, isn't it? We get entangled in this stuff that traps us and holds us back. Well, we have to drop it. We have to drop it and we have to follow him. Never fear. Only trust and obey. Let us pray. Father God, we say that we're following you. We say that we're producing all this wonderful fruit, and yet inside, deep in our hearts, we know we hold back. Father, there are places in our lives where we blend in and we do it on purpose. No one knows that we even follow you because of the way in which we blend in. And so help us, Father, to pursue you and your Son wholeheartedly. Help us to grow in living a biblical lifestyle, and may it spill over into our relationships and into the daily spiritual practice in in which we engage. And may we do so not for the impressive, shiny fruit that others will see, but to solely and totally glorify you. And it is your your name that we, we ask this. Amen.